Um, I was in London this week. Um, I hadn't kind of clocked when I was booked into various things that it was coronation week. So um, it was fascinating to be there. Lots of police everywhere. Uh, lots of bunting, all that sort of stuff. I was there on Monday, Tuesday at a big leadership conference from, with people from all around the world. And uh, on the first day, we were walking somewhere near, it was in the Royal Albert Hall, and we were walking uh, to get some lunch. And suddenly, out of nowhere, these motorbike police, police motorbike outriders pulled up uh, and started blowing their whistles and telling everyone basically to stand still which I'd seen before when we used to live in London and I'd forgotten about. And then more arrived and more whistles and everyone stopped. And we're thinking, who's coming through? Who's coming through? And the first car that shot through uh, on the Monday had the Prime Minister in. So, hey, Rishi. Tick. And then, yes, uh, uh, the second day on the Tuesday, uh, we were in a break. We went outside the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, there's about 2,000 people outside, if you know it, on the northern edge, looking into the edge of the park. And same thing happened. Loads of police outriders pull up, blowing their whistles, and then there's this long gap. And all of a sudden, this multi-million pound armor-plated Bentley drives past very serenely with King Charles III waving at everybody. And the crowd went wild, because half the people out there had come from all around the world. They, we've seen the king! Um, so I just wanted you to know that that last week, uh, I <laughs> met the Prime Minister and the King, in my mind. I mean, it's as close as I'm ever going to get, I reckon. It's quite exciting. Annoyingly, my phone was not with me on either occasion, so I didn't have any evidence. But the Ritchie family aren't here this morning. Dan Ritchie was with me, so he can verify the sighting of the King. Um, I tell you that really as a segue into talking about Jesus, the King. Uh, but what struck me about those two experiences, and then, of course, yesterday, is that we see in all of that, whether it's police motorbikes and, you know, kind of security guards and important people in very expensive cars, or all the sort of trappings of the ceremony yesterday, the kind of epitome of what earthly power and wealth and prestige and status looks like within human society. I'm sure all of us watched different bits of the coronation. And I love the fact that it began, the service, the service itself began with a young child welcoming the king with these words. Your majesty, as children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the king of kings. It's just a spine-tingling moment. That, yeah, we've got all of that earthly power and wealth and the motorbikes stop, stop the people and we all wave. And, but at the end of the day, that's just stuff. It's just fluff before Almighty God. So the king's reply was this. In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. And the archbishop picked up on this in the opening part of his sermon. He said, we are here to crown a king, and we crown a king to serve. What is given today is for the gain of all. The king of kings, Jesus Christ, was anointed not to be served, but to serve. We're working our way through Luke's gospel uh, in chunks, and we can't do every section, otherwise we'll be here till next summer. But uh, what Luke is doing, if you remember, is trying to tell the true and full story of Jesus from his birth all the way through his ministry, his life, death, and resurrection. And in part two of his writing, the book of Acts, what then the people of God did post-resurrection. And what he's wanting to do is show how in and through Jesus, 
God is fulfilling all the promises that he has made to humanity that we find all the way through the Old Testament. Luke it says, wants us to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we were told would come to serve, the servant king that Isaiah talks about. And it was just a really helpful reminder yesterday to remember that King Charles or Rich Johnson or you, all of us ultimately, we're all level at the foot of the cross. There, there are no us and them. There's us and him. Luke, so far, has, uh, we've covered various things. In uh, part one, on two weeks ago, we looked at the introduction and the purpose behind Luke. And then last week, Fraser took us through some of the early sections. We looked at the birth of John the Baptist and, uh, and the birth of Jesus and saw how they too were prophesied in the Old Testament, that they were fulfilled uh, in, through John and Jesus. We looked particularly at the response of Mary to all of this, this ordinary person invited into the story of Jesus and showed, uh, Fraser showed us that we are called equally to respond to the Lord as he invites us to play our part in this unfolding story that's yet to be finished. We haven't got time for it in the series, but chapter two, we know it quite well because we speak about this a lot at Christmas and in Advent, but that's all about the birth and childhood of Jesus. And actually, there's this moment in verse 29 of chapter 2 where Simeon, one of these elders in the temple, recognizes Jesus and says, this is the one we've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of that promise that this one would come bundled up in the form of a baby. And then chapter 3 is all about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, that too was all prophesied about in Isaiah. You can go back and read that. We looked at the, uh, you'll see in there the chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. He enters the Israelite story through his own baptism. And then there's this long list, isn't there, in the end of chapter 3, the, the genealogy of Jesus, which is in there because Luke is wanting us to understand the credentials that Jesus has. That he is, it makes complete sense that it's Jesus if you understand his family tree, his ancestry. So that brings us to Luke chapter 4. And one of these uh, significant moments, I think, in the life of Jesus. And as we will see, significant in the ministry of Jesus as he went about fulfilling God's covenant promises, and I would argue is significant for you and I if we're serious about following after him. So a bit of context real quick, verses 1 and 2. Jesus has just been baptized in the River Jordan. He's been filled with the Spirit. There's this moment, isn't there, where John the Baptist in the other account says, when Jesus says, I want to be baptized, John's like, hang on, you don't need to be baptized. You're the Messiah. But Jesus understands that if he is to fulfill the promises that he's there to do, that if he's to be our savior, he has to enter into our story. He has to become one of us. And that too means he has to enter into the waters of baptism. He has to identify with us our need for salvation, our need for rescue. And so he's baptized. He's then filled with the Holy Spirit because uh, that's what happens when we give our lives to Jesus. And it's interesting is that all of that happens before he's done any of his earthly ministry. And the first thing that happens, the Spirit, the same Spirit that's just filled him at his baptism, leads him, we're told, into the wilderness. The word there in the Greek is a ramos. We've talked about that in the past, about inhabiting this wilderness, this space of silence and solitude, being alone with God. It literally translates as the quiet place. So the Spirit takes him, essentially, onto a spiritual retreat. So before he does anything, he goes on retreat. But this is no ordinary retreat. It's 40 days long. 
He hasn't had any food. And at the end of it, he is tempted, we're told, by the devil. Just at the point where he's physically weakest, but probably spiritually strongest, he finds himself having to face the temptations that the devil gives him. And we'll come to those in a moment, but let's just note what's going on here. Luke is making sure that we link back to the Old Testament so that, as I say, we can see how this fits with this unfolding story. And so remember that the nation of Israel came out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea with God declaring that Israel is the firstborn son of the new creation that is to come. But then they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, lost without purpose, disobedient, grumbling about not having enough food and complaining about the kind of food they were getting, missing the fact that they're being miraculously provided for, that God is with them day and night. They flirt disastrously with idols, and they continually put God to the test. And so what we're meant to hear is, here's Jesus being the faithful, true Israel, that he is led by God through the waters of baptism, not the Red Sea, with God declaring in that moment, this is his eternal, unique son who has been entrusted with the mission to lead all people, not just from slavery and captivity to Egypt, or in that context, they would have understood it as Rome, and we might think of it now as the digital Babylon that we're kind of enslaved to, but actually an exodus, a setting, sorry, a setting free from sin and death itself the true exodus. And so Jesus is wanting us to understand this has begun. It begins in that moment. Luke is telling the story. So do you see what he's doing here? That he's reorienting the story. He's restoring it and becoming Israel, the true Israel, so that we can have the true liberation. And how does he do it? Well, ultimately, we'll come to this in a moment. He does it on the cross, of course, in his death. But actually, it begins with this personal and intimate moment where he personally, on his own, has to resolve, am I going to give myself to that? He has to make a choice. And so he has to decide, do I want to defeat the devil? I've been sent to abolish the works of the evil one. I've got to make reckoning with him. I've got to decide from the very get-go, this is what I'm going to do. That's why the Spirit leads him. It's not like the devil finds him. The Spirit leads him and allows it to happen because that's how it works. The devil attempts to tempt Jesus three times. And notice, they're really plausible and actually quite attractive. And if you understand the assignment that Jesus has been given, they kind of make some sense, right? You know, have, have some food. Don't worry about having to be reliant on God. And have some power so you can crack on more quickly. And do some amazing things so everyone will see straight away that you really are the Messiah. But instead, Jesus resists these three temptations. He hears these offers made to him by the evil one, the devil. Notice the language in the scriptures. If, dot, 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 then, dot, 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 it's temptation. If you just compromise here, then you can have this now. But Jesus knows that he has to do the work of the Father and that it has to be his way not the devil's way. So the first one we see is in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If, he says, um, Luke, I think we'll come back to those slides later. Sorry, mate. If, uh, he says in verse 6 to 7, if you worship me, it will all be yours. So you notice that if, then. 
there's a temptation and then there's offer that seems so seductive. Then the final one is in verse 9. If you are the Son of God, well, throw yourself down from here. Because, of course, you can save yourself. Prove it. He's almost the third one. It's like this baiting, tempting. He's trying harder each time. And each time, Jesus manages to resist temptation. And notice how he resists. He resists not in his own strength, not in, like, stubborn defiance, just, like, grinning and bearing it. I'm just going to endure this. But by standing on the truth of Scripture. So his response each time to the devil is with some scripture. And notice, they are, these three lines of scripture are all taken from the passages about Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. So he's redeeming that story. It's brilliant. So notice the first response, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That's actually a conversation they have with God in Exodus. Um, Verse 8, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's in the context of idolatry. You're not meant to have any golden calves and any of that stuff. And then the third one, it is read, do not put the Lord your God to your test. Jesus knows the story he's in. And Luke's put all this detail in so that we go, ah, I see what he's doing there. Do you see what he's doing? It's absolutely brilliant. Because the devil has no response to that. King Jesus went back to the scriptures. In the face of temptation, that, the word of God that was in him, was enough for him to resist this temptation presented to him. That is why you should read your Bibles. And there are loads of other reasons, but that's a really good one. So hopefully you've been reading them this morning. But if it's not in you in those moments, it's too late. You'll often fall. It's interesting to me that in the coronation, the first thing that Charles was given as a sign, as a, as a, a means of being an earthly king was a Bible. That's by design. And it came with these words, which you may have heard, old words that have been in the coronation liturgy for hundreds of years. Here's a Bible, Charlie. The most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. In other words, if if you're going to rule as an earthly king with any degree of success, you have to base it on this book. So we need to pray for him. So Luke is deliberately including this story in the gospel to help us see what's going on. And hopefully you're starting to get the picture a bit more fully. To properly understand it, we actually need to go right back to the beginning of the Bible. Because actually what I'm hoping you've heard is echoes of Eden here. Where the first temptation of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, human beings, uh, is uh, experienced. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. The snake, the personification of the devil, appears within the Garden of Eden. Now side note, who's responsible for the garden? Adam and Eve, they've been entrusted to garden, to be the gardeners, so somehow they've let this thing in, because we're all immune to that, aren't we? And actually the serpent comes in, and he says this to them, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Like, really? So he sows some doubts, and then he offers them the same kind of thing that he offered Jesus. 
He offers them an alternative. Because you see, I'm saying to you, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, actually, just, I know God said something else, but I promise you, you'll be okay. And of course, they're tempted, and they do eat the apple, and the curse of sin and death enters the world. And what Luke wants us to understand is that what Jesus has begun to do, the very first thing he does in his earthly ministry, is begin to reverse that curse. The idea emerges that uh, Jesus is the true or the second Adam. So whereas Adam and Eve fall to temptation, they can't resist it, and it brings in sin and death. Jesus does stand firm, and in beginning to do that, and in doing that, begins to reverse the curse of sin and death. It happens ultimately through his death and resurrection, but it began here with this choice to resist, to be obedient, to be faithful, to stand firm, to say no, and actually is redeeming all of humanity. He's beginning to undo our own failings and standing in our place as the great high priest, as the true Adam, the true human being. So we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's Paul's way of saying Jesus is reversing the curse. This is good news. And that's why all the detail that puts in, Luke puts in is so important. And similarly, Paul in Romans chapter 5, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Do you see that? So theologians talk about something called cosmic recapitulation, which sounds great. It's basically, think of it as a massive spiritual U-turn. Jesus steps into human history, slams on the handbrake, flips the car around because we're going to turn it back around. And it starts with him saying, no, no, no. And it starts to extinguish the power of death and evil. So the theologians Hunter and Wellham put it like this. They say this, what does Jesus' encounter with the demoniac show us about the salvation he brings? That while Adam stands as the head of the human race, Christ stands as the head of a new race. Christ stands, they say, in complete and total contrast with Adam. Adam, the first man and the head of the old creation, represents sin, rebellion, and death. But Jesus, God the Son incarnate, and the head of the new creation, represents obedience and life and resurrection power. We are the first Adam but we're invited to transfer our allegiance to the new Adam, Jesus Christ, to take up our own cross, to die to ourselves, to be made new in him, so that we too, in obedience, can experience life through resurrection power, to be truly set free from the effects of sin and death itself. Put another way, Jesus was what Adam wasn't. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. And that begins this story of redemption. Which is why none of us ever face temptation anymore, right? Isn't it amazing? Obviously not. And so what does all of this mean for you and I? Because up until now, that's theology and it's important. But how does it land in our lives? Well, I want to suggest it's really helpful for us to get our heads around it because it shows us how we too can experience and resist temptation because we all face the same temptations. Actually, as you'll see in a moment, in a way, we all face the same temptations that Jesus faced. 
So Henri Nouon, who's a French Catholic, was a French Catholic theologian, has written a lot about this passage and in two really helpful books. And he suggests there are two different ways that each of those three temptations uh, apply to us. We experience them in our own lives and different ways in which actually we experience the same temptations that Jesus did, but actually show us us how we can resist them as well. So first one, if you are the son of God, tell this son to become, sorry, tell this stone to become a bread. So Nuance says there are two temptations here for us. Uh, and what I should have said is the first in each of these slides is how we relate to God, a temptation to relate to God in a particular way. Um, and the second is a, a temptation to relate to others in a particular kind of way, both of which are not the way of God. So the first one uh, he suggests that Jesus here is tempting us to do is, is to become materialistic and to pursue our own pleasure rather than life in God, to take matters into our own hands, to pursue wealth, acquisition of stuff, so we don't need God. We move from dependency to independency, and actually to uh, seek life and pleasure beyond him. That's the kind of posture towards God. Thanks, God, but I'm okay, actually. I don't, you know, actually, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. The second is to be relevant to the world around us, at the expense of serving God, to compromise something of what it means to be in Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, to make ourselves seem more palatable, to be more relevant, to be a bit more with it, was actually to be Christian is countercultural, increasingly so. And new one suggests that actually there are spiritual practices we can adopt that help us resist this temptation. So, for example, silence and solitude, the eremos going into the space with God and going, just being alone with God and rediscovering who God is. Contemplative prayer, seeking the presence of God and being satisfied with that and captivated by that, that actually we trust him more fully than ever and we don't care what other people think because we're in him and we've seen him afresh. The second temptation is to, uh, based on verse 7, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Nuance suggests is twofold again. The first is to seek success and recognition in the eyes of the world rather than the affirmation of God. Uh, that's to sort of not trust that God has his best intentions for us, that what he thinks of us is enough, to somehow to, to be tempted to need more than that. Is this making sense? can relate to it right it's like oh you're reading my mail and then the second one he says is to be spectacular for the applause and admiration of others not the praise of God so we think carefully about what we look like and what we say and what we post and who we follow and where we live and blah 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 because actually really what we want is other people to think we're impressive the temptation to be spectacular was actually the invitation of God is humility and surrender and it's just for you, Lord. So whatever it takes and whatever it costs. And Nuance suggests that here that the practices of confession and repentance are really important. Now, he's thinking in a Catholic sense that he would have had a particular understanding of confession. But actually, confession is really about just confessing our sin, confessing the fact, oh, I was tempted. I've been seduced by this temptation to make myself look spectacular so more people think I'm more impressive than I really am. And repentance is changing your mind. It's choosing to live differently into the light of that revelation. The third temptation Jesus has is, if, is this. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. 
A nuanced suggestion here is that the temptation is to be powerful for our own gain rather than serving others in the power of God. You can have power for people or you can have power over people. It's a massive issue in the church, more than ever. And uh, we're, all in, we're all caught up in power dynamics, not just in the church, in our families, in our relationships. The temptation here is to assume or to accrue power for our own gain, which always means power at the expense of somebody else. And that is not the way of Jesus. Any power given to any of us is so that someone else thrives and flourishes. And the second, he says, is to trust more in our own ability to solve problems than trusting in God's ways. Jesus had all of that going on in those three temptations. And the practices he suggests of community, where we're held to account, and Sabbath, this resistance of just needing to, needing to have you in the mix, a day a week where you go, I'm not in charge, I'm off GD, there's a God and he's got it, it's fine. They break, he says, that temptation to become powerful for your own gain. So there's loads in there, and we'll put it in the life group study notes, and you can unpack that together. And it's just a helpful way of looking at this and going, there's other ways all of this applies to us. But, oh, my goodness, let's not be naive at thinking that somehow we don't experience all the same temptations that Jesus did. Of course we do. And you will find this, that the, um, the more things are given to you by God, the more temptation uh, you will experience from the devil. It's just the, it's just the way it works. So these spiritual practices, they don't ultimately do it for us. What they do is they get us into that place, that posture before God, where actually he can do a deep work in us because we choose again to trust him. We choose again to be obedient. We choose again to deny ourselves everything that Jesus did in the Eremos. And what that means is daily dying to ourselves, daily taking up our own cross, regardless of the cost, because we know that's the path to life everlasting. There is joy and freedom in surrender. And in a moment, we're going to break bread and share wine together, this holy meal that reminds us of the ultimate liberation and salvation that Jesus achieved for us. And it will remind us the liturgy that actually the ultimate temptation that Jesus faced was not in the Eremos. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And all his disciples have fallen asleep. And he's just there on his own. He knows what's coming. He's literally sweating blood. He's that stressed. And there's a temptation in that moment to save himself. To just walk away. But he says, not my will, but yours, Father. That's the ultimate moment. That's the decisive. That's the game changer right there. Everything else that happened, he knew was going to happen. He just said yes to it on his own in the garden. And because of that personal victory in the Eremos and that moment in the garden, the next day he finds himself hanging on a cross. He dies, the most brutal death, but he'd already won. And sin and death are extinguished, and he's raised to new life 
And he says, come, choose me. Resist those temptations to be relevant and spectacular and powerful. Resist the temptation to do it without me. Recognize that you are Adam unless you are in me. This is the true exodus here. Lay down your life and I will give it back to you in a form that you've never experienced, tasted and seen before. That's what happens when people come to faith. They have this moment of, oh my goodness, now I see. And something happens in them, it explodes in them. And so we worship a king who, as we heard yesterday, has a throne that looks like a cross, wears a crown made of thorns, and he doesn't need garments, grand garments. He's got pierced wounds on his body that are more beautiful than any robe. And he's the only true king of all the world. Let's be still. We're going to sing a song in a moment to help us prepare our hearts to take bread and wine. But before we do that, let's be still. And I want to encourage you to do two things. The first is to recognize that you need to be saved that I recognize that I need to be saved, that I face temptation every single day to step out of what I've found in Christ and to take matters into my own hand. That is because we're imperfect, yet to be fully transformed human beings. We are kidding ourselves if we think otherwise. But the second is to recognize that it's all there in the person of Jesus. And so simply we come in humility.